wonderful, amazing, fantastic folks. We are here again, and this is Hello Wonderful Podcast. I'm Carrie Darnack, I'm your host, and we have a treat for you. I have Ethan Beck here. They're a therapist specializing in emotional trauma. So this is something new, so excited. Hey, Ethan, how are you? I am good. How are you today, Terry? I'm great. Ethan has this amazing pink tipped hair that I'm always a big fan of. Super faded right now, but we'll <laughs> do something else fun soon. <laughs> but my hair is pink a lot. I always will say on my podcast how much I love the color pink. Ethan, can I please have your pronouns? Yeah, so my pronouns are they, she. Uh, you can use them interchangeably. I definitely enjoy when people use they because I know that a lot of people, when they hear they she they tend to go for the straight to the she but I like to use both and yeah my name is Eason I am a technically my degree is marriage and family therapy but I only see individuals but I like to look at that look at cases through a systemic perspective and like consider relationships very strongly in the process as Terry said I focus on emotional abuse and also religious trauma specifically thank you so much but yeah, I think that going on a couple of things to say, people do get confused about the pronouns. And then people do sometimes see that the MFD and think that you only work with marriage family therapy. But yeah, thank you so much. But I'm so excited because Ethan is here to talk about religious trauma. I'm so excited about that because that is something new and something that we see a lot in the queer population. I do have this question. You would ask me what questions I have. And so you're going to be like, oh my gosh, Terry, you did have a question. I asked you about questions, Terry. <laughs> well, I like questions, so. You like questions. Okay. What is it like to work with religious trauma? I actually did want to share the definition of religious trauma for anyone listening who maybe hasn't encountered the term before. Yeah. So religious trauma syndrome, this is just the like definition on Google, <laughs> occurs when an individual struggles with leaving a religion or a set of beliefs that has led to their indoctrination. And it often involves some of the trauma often centers around the breaking away from the controlling environment, lifestyle, or figure. What is it like working with religious trauma? It's often a lot of helping people to find their sense of self and also to work through a lot of the guilt and shame that comes up when people leave. And it's also like providing a supportive space for people to figure out what like they want to believe because we're not in it to like be religious or not be religious, but just to have the space to figure out what do you believe now that you have the choice. So yeah, so that's really rewarding, like helping people find what really like makes them happy and what is, what is a fulfilling life for you by your own definition. Of course, because I feel like before that point, it's not being led by that. Yeah. I think I didn't even mention the fear. I was like, it's often like there can be so much like fear based ideas of how to exist in the world. And so we're sifting through like what is fear based and what is authentic to how somebody wants to live their life. 
So that is a pretty big component of it as well. I mean, because, you know, we were talking before and before we, before I hit that lovely record button, and there's a lot of anxiety when it comes to religious trauma and a lot of flashbacks can happen. And, you know, I'll, I'll let you share anything you'd like to share about, you know, anything you've come across or, or anything like that, or, or what religious trauma can look like. But I think that anxiety is a huge part of it. And yeah. it can feel very controlling, which is interesting because that's what religious trauma can come from is a very controlled environment. And the religious trauma itself can be controlling. I think the survivor feels controlled by the trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Like, for example, like not, I mean, typical like PTSD avoidance symptoms of like not going back to the place not feeling comfortable doing things. It can look like any number of things, but like avoiding anything that reminds you of the trauma, whether that's people, places, et cetera. And I was just saying it's ironic because the environment they were in was likely a very controlling environment. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's, it's then kind of ironic because that controlled feeling doesn't really leave. It's still there, just in a different form. Yeah, and that's where people who grew up in maybe like a more... People who came from maybe a more mainstream religion or just had a milder experience. Sometimes people have like a more natural or gradual breakaway. And it can be tough to explain to people the difference between sort of that natural shift and like religious trauma because people will think, oh, well, like you're safe now or like you left that environment. Like, why don't you just go try all these new things? But there's, like you said, there's often that control because it's psychological and emotional where it doesn't matter if you've left the group or you've left the church or you've left the family or whoever, like there's still that psychological control that's there even when your environment has changed. So, yeah, I know I feel like I'm being really abstract right now, but I always like to share, this is a personal example I'm comfortable sharing because I also have a background recovering from religious trauma. Where like, I remember after I left, I had to leave very abruptly and I didn't have anything like even underwear. And I remember going to the store to like buy underwear and the very kind person who had taken me was like surprised by the extremely modest underwear I picked. And it was like, even though I had left the environment, like I just could not fathom picking something that might be like sexy, <laughs> even though like I was free, like I was not psychologically free of it. For honestly, like it was probably a good few years before and a lot of therapy before I maybe got underwear with, I don't know, that wasn't just like the most plain white modest thing you could find. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's to give it a tangible example. Yeah. And I don't think that's uncommon. I've heard these stories. I've also, you know, I remember growing up and actually even, you know, trying to become friends with people in even more strict environments that I you know, my mom was very strict Baptist, you know, I was talking to you about this and, and I thought this was difficult, but it's not compared to, I had, I had tried to become friends with people who were even in more controlled, more strict environments. And it was impossible because they weren't allowed to be friends with me. They were not allowed to be friends with me because of like what I wore, how I talked, like what I was around the media I was around. It was very it was sad and they were sad. Like they were actually sad that they could not be friends with me. I even remember being an adult in undergrad. And I remember working with someone who was actually like living in an environment 
who actually like was under this belief system. And it was interesting talking to her and she felt pulled from this belief. Like, you know, she would say like she wanted to do something, but she couldn't because of like what she had to wear where she wanted to do something because she couldn't because of her belief system. It was like she wanted to, but she couldn't at the time. Like I was still trying to understand it. I mean, again, I was not therapist yet. I did not work with trauma yet. I did not work with any type of religious trauma. I, I was still kind of trying to understand differences in people. Now I have a very, a much clearer understanding of what this person was going through, but it was like, like now looking back, I can tell like she did feel trapped. Like she married someone within the community because she needed to marry someone in the community. And like the description of this person that she married was, he's nice. I like him, but there wasn't like love there. It was like this forced dating. Yeah. I often used, I don't know like how technical we want to get or like who the audience is. I don't want to like go crazy, go way deep into theory, but I often, I really love pulling, like, have you heard of like Bowen's intergenerational theory? Cause like they talk about yes. differentiation and I, I'm, I'm nodding I'm, so that the people who are listening know yeah. what saying. Yes. Yes. I have body. I'm Where, nodding my head. <laughs> yeah. So being differentiated is like, it's having your own sense of self, right. Apart right. from the group. And often like with folks who have experienced religious trauma, there's so like little differentiation from the other members of the group that there can be like what you're describing, where it's like, you kind of feel funneled into this one outcome, not to say that that outcome's like bad or wrong, if that's what you would choose, but there can be this sense where there almost isn't any other option. And like you said, there can be like this kind of like confusion or sadness, like this was my only choice, but do I like this? But then also there's this rigid set of beliefs where it's like, you can't even question it. Right. And I think encountering people like yourself, that can start to really disrupt that and send off these, these questions that can actually be really terrifying. Because if you answer those questions while you're still in that environment, you may start to lose your support system. That's a real risk for a lot of people with religious Mm -hmm. trauma, or it can just like really shake up your sense of self. Like sometimes I'll work with people who are then... I'm not projecting onto the person you encountered, but like sometimes I'll encounter someone who's really regretting getting married because they started to have those, like I'm snapping my fingers, those like light bulb questions, like going off after they've made these really big life decisions. And then they may come to therapy, not quite knowing that religious trauma is not quite having that on their radar, but going like, I made all these choices because I had to, and now I'm really unhappy. So sometimes people come in not saying I have religious trauma syndrome, but they're saying like, I had to do this because of this set of beliefs and realizing this isn't, I'm starting to question those beliefs. Exactly. I think that that is interesting because I've seen this happen in more than one situation and it's Sometimes people go into these communities after addiction. I've seen this happen. Sometimes they're raised in these communities. And then I've talked to them later. And it is like their sense of self becomes like, it's not them. Like it becomes the community. Like the community is the self. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, well, what does the community want? What does the community need? And, you know, sometimes people are happy with it. Sometimes people are not. I think that when it's not what someone wants, 
people get trapped, that's a huge problem. And that's where the trauma comes in. Yeah. And I know before we got started, we were also talking about how the LGBT plus community often like is directly harmed by some of these belief systems. I don't know where I'm going with that, but that's that's for sure a theme that I see is that often people who are very negatively <laughs> impacted. Yeah. No, but they are. They are very negatively impacted because what happens is pretty much, I'm not going to say all of them because who knows, there's probably communities out there that are very LGBT plus accepting, who knows. But I know that there are quite a few of these communities, these religious belief systems that are anti-LGBT plus. And I both know this, you know, there's mainstream religious beliefs that are anti-LGBT plus that are actually can be quite controlling, like sex that are quite controlling, that aren't actually these other communities that we're talking about. I think that it does definitely cause religious trauma because what happens is that these people in the LGBT plus communities, queer individuals, they feel stuck. They don't have support. They're basically told that they are wrong that what they're feeling is wrong. They're told that what they're feeling is what fake or it's just a behavior or it's imaginative or I can come up with all sorts of things that they're told that it's a sin. It's in their head. It's an illness that there's so many different things that they're told, right? Depending upon who's talking to them, but there's so many different things that they're told. They're sent to camps because these things still exist. Yep, they do. And people try to brainwash them, which also then makes them feel crazy because then they're like, okay, what am I feeling is wrong? I shouldn't be feeling this. But then they start, then they have this thought that is actually a natural thought in their head about their gender and sexual orientation. And then they, they again, feel crazy because they're told by these people they're supposed to trust that is wrong. (laughs) They shouldn't be feeling it. And it causes trauma. Yeah. And there's often no one to look to as like a role model in the community because people don't stay there. So there's not other people to look up to, to like challenge that. And they don't know who to trust. They have no idea who to trust because their friends are in the community. They don't know if they talk to their friends, if they're going to tell an elder. Yeah. And their online use is probably monitored. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of people who are outside of these communities, I feel like often don't understand. It's like, oh, well, like, why wouldn't you just Google it? Or like, how could you be that? I think there can be sort of like this, not intentionally like invalidating, but unfortunately it is invalidating for a lot of religious trauma survivors is like people who didn't grow up in that kind of an environment might be like, well, like, why wouldn't you know that? Or kind of like victim blaming, like, well, why wouldn't you just look that up? Like it's the 21st century, like how could you be that sheltered? And people don't realize just how deep the control goes in a lot of these situations, especially for people who were maybe alternatively schooled. I'm talking like small religious schools or homeschool Mm -hmm. or, and often, like you said, even internet access is often restricted because there is so much fear about people exploring other ideas. And there is, there's TV is extremely censored. You know, some of them are homeschooled or they go to small private schools. Their friends are in the community. People can be extremely controlled. And so, you know, if they are actually, if they do gain any type of freedom, they have no idea what's going on in the world. 
and, you know, going back to your story, it could be like, you know, people get out and like, they do have to get out and gain their emotional and cognitive freedom slowly because they have been so sheltered and they have been so controlled that they still feel controlled. And I I think there is that element of people often losing contact with like family or their support system, because that is a real issue for a lot of religious trauma survivors. Well, there's likely grief that goes along with that. Yeah. And we were talking about that before we came on, like we were talking about how sometimes it's treated as like grief by clinicians who maybe aren't familiar with religious trauma because they may be treating the cutoff or unfortunately sometimes like telling people to get back in touch with something that's not helpful to their process. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Or you mean, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't do that, but yours. But it's not just grief. Exactly. I mean, yes, there is grief in it, of course, because you're, I mean, if you're, if you're no longer being able to talk to someone, but it's not just grief, there's a lot more involved in the process. All that does is encourage additional trauma. You mean the, like that, encouraging people to, yeah, it's encouraging people yeah. to get, get, you know, get back in touch. I'm just not, I'm just not into all or nothing thinking, but there's definitely schools of thought where it's like all cutoffs are bad. And I'm like, that's no, (laughs) I had to break up with a supervisor at one point because of that. And I'm like, no, like you got to be with the client where they're at. (laughs) You know, I've cut people off and maybe at some point in my life, I will uncut them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that happens in the queer community. And I think that people should be encouraged to if it's like really unhealthy for you, if you cannot function, if you are being damaged by that person, I think it's okay because you can't control how the person's behaving. Like if you're constantly trying, the other person's not trying at all, you're allowed to cut them off. And, and I think that's okay. And there's so many reasons why you can cut someone off. So many different stalking. That one comes up a lot. Stalking. Yeah. (laughs) That that one comes up a lot with religious trauma. Stalking is bad. Yeah, obviously, definitely bad. Definitely comes up with religious trauma under the guise of like evangelizing. Yes, it's very true. And in the Church of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, there's a really strong ex-Mormon community on, I know we're not on, I keep thinking we're doing an Instagram live, we're doing a podcast, but there's definitely a really strong ex-Mormon community. Feels the same, except we don't have the comments, but (laughs) yeah that also happened to me multiple times growing up but like it's very true yeah I was not raised Mormon but I found that those communities can be like really helpful like that was something I stumbled upon and I should also just for context for listeners it's been like eight years for me so I'm like pretty far been eight years and a lot of therapy so I'm pretty far into this but looking back into like those first couple of years I I remember stumbling upon a couple of like ex-Mormon folks. And that was like really Mm -hmm. validating, like them talking about their process. And a lot of it is that it's so hard to make sense of it. So if you leave a community and then you go out into the sort of like the more secular world or even a less restrictive religion, there can be that fish out of water feeling that a lot of people feel. And it's like, there may be some love and support to come to, but there can also be this feeling said fish out of water where people are like you have a lot to catch up on culturally sometimes (laughs) we were talking about how tv is restricted you have a lot to catch up on identity wise 
Yeah, there's also some really great podcasts. One that I discovered recently, I really like. It's called Thereafter, and it's hosted by people. They have they have people come on every week, and they're basically like ex-purity religious ex-Christian. They're so open. They're LGBT plus allied. Some of the people they have on our the community. I love that podcast. And there's other ones like it. That one right now is on my my favorite list. So I totally recommend it. And I'll give them a shout out and, <laughs> and tag them. Take a look at Thereafter. I think that would be helpful audience because like just listening to podcasts, taking a look at Facebook groups. Facebook has a lot of groups, things like that. Instagram. Yeah. I want to like shout out. Following Ethan. Yeah, I'm the I'm the spooky therapist is is my handle. I'm also a doula and I that was actually something that was a way that I found a lot of people who were like very helpful who ended up vicariously like following their religious trauma journeys. Uh, I really liked Katie Vigos, V-I-G-O-S from the Empowered Birth Project, but she shares a lot about like going from on her ex-Mormon journey, both she and her husband, and I believe she's also like poly and bi and these were like all things that she discovered after being married for some time and that was really encouraging and cool to see somebody who I had followed for a long time for the doula community like being open about these different things and also that like she and her husband kind of went on this journey together wherever you find it like finding other people you can relate to and especially finding like your community who you can hopefully locally hang out with that can be a huge step. And that's definitely something that I work with people on is like how to identify like a support system because uh, found family can be really, really important because of that loss of relationships that a lot of folks deal with when they're healing from religious trauma. This is Auntie Vice from Fat Chicks on Top, and I love Hello Wonderful. If you're looking for more conversations with a diverse group of queer folks, please check out my podcast on all streaming services or fatchicksontop.com. It's really important. You can create your family. You can find a family. I mean, that's really true in the queer community, too. A lot of people in the queer community create their own family. Again, I try to avoid talking about it like there's only one way. Because there are certainly people who decide they do want to maintain some contact with their family, even if there are some things that don't feel good or like a good fit. Having that support system is still so valuable because it's like, who do you, let's say, for example, someone wants to still spend some holidays with their family or they want to have some level of contact, having that support system to come back to, to really nurture you and fill your cup back up after encounter after engaging in some of these more like difficult interactions that's so important like you need that net to that safety net to come back to there's so many different ways that people can make boundaries and of course there's really no rules with boundaries which is an important thing to keep in mind and you can be very creative with them when you're thinking about how i want to set boundaries with someone you have to think well what do you need Like, what are you getting from them? What do you need to get from your boundaries? And then start there. And I also would acknowledge that that can be like a really hard question for some people when they're just Mm -hmm. starting this process. Like there's so many, you ask that question, like, what do you need? And people are like, I have no idea. No one's ever asked me that before. So that can be a little journey as well of figuring out like, wait, what do I need? Or like, how can relationships look? It's like a whole exploration. 
Yeah. Well, someone who's been traumatized and abused, they might have severe difficulty answering, well, what do I need? Because they likely have not been made a priority. Yep. I think that that can be quite difficult, which is why therapy can be really helpful, like seeing a therapist or even going to group therapy. We're a support group, which is like all of these are very, very possible solutions. You know, there's teletherapy, there's in-person therapy. If you can't find a therapist or can't afford one, there's group therapy, there's support systems. Open Path Collective, find sliding yeah. scale therapy or there. Yes, that's, which is really awesome. Yeah. And not all, sometimes there are ways to find free or low cost therapy. It just depends on where you live. I know it can be harder depending on geography. Like, you know, in Philadelphia, there are some, because I'm in the Philadelphia area, there are some places where you can access like free or low cost therapy in addition to open path. Which is really awesome that um, Eason works with a, a place that actually offers slide on scale like that, because there's a lot of places that, that don't offer it and it can be really hard to, to find like um, pro bono and slide and scale. We do, but we're not like a huge place. So we don't always have, what is the word? Oh, availability. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, was that word? The really important word? <laughs> yeah. If it's a network of therapists, which I think Open Path is, right? It's a network. It's really just a, no, you're not even a contractor. It's really just a listing service to advertise service. whatever number of sliding scale spots you may offer like as an individual therapist. Yeah, which is really nice. Can I ask you a question? I wanted to know like how, I don't know if this is something that you do as a therapist, but how do you, or would you go about like helping somebody who maybe isn't really clear on what their sexual orientation is, or is like just starting to explore? They're just starting to explore. Yeah. Like maybe they're in a, maybe they had been in a situation where they have like an idea, but they aren't quite in touch with themselves. But I mean, I guess me, like I'm a narrative therapist. So I think, I mean, me, I guess I would work with it in a narrative way. Like I'm different than I guess some other people. So I would work with it. And I guess with narrative therapy, which is like my favorite of all the narrative. Yeah. I love narrative. So I would probably have them start pretty early on and have them actually start with their narrative. And then process through that because I feel like the beginning is always a really great beginning and kind of have them kind of just process that and process their thoughts and feelings and their emotions because especially with sexual orientation and then have them kind of explore their thoughts and feelings through their experiences because I feel like that would be help them figure themselves out with because I'm not going to actually input my thoughts into it. I would let them explore it and then kind of guide them through their narrative mm-hmm. because that's usually what I do. And then that kind of helps them explore more into their own self because, and then just kind of pinpoint those pockets where they might find the answer. Right. Yeah. I, and I guess I was more asking, like, have you had that experience of someone maybe not quite yeah. knowing at an older yeah. age? I think that especially with sexual, well, again, oh my gosh, now I said sexual and I meant religious. That was a Freudian slip. Okay, especially with religious <laughs> trauma, it can be a lot later because they feel like they can't explore it. Yeah. They might actually have this idea that there's something different about them and they might have a 
almost a fear that there's something different, but they can't explore it. And then like they start to escape that fear and then they start really realizing I'm different. Then we get a call. And like, in fact, I get them all. I get them a lot. I Mm -hmm. just don't see clients as much anymore. I only have like four, maybe four clients that I just, I just have on my caseload because I can't keep my chops up, but mostly I supervise now and I do this and I keep the, I work as CEO, but you know, as far as that goes, like we do, we get them and they, they, the therapists see them and they come in and that's usually what it looks like. They realize that there's something going on. They hadn't explored it because of this or that, and they really need to explore it. And it usually has to do with culture background religion yeah or an early marriage yeah and we know early marriage <laughs> again when I say something I always want to be like and there are exceptions I'm not saying early marriage is always a yeah. bad thing if that's what you chose freely for yourself and had a good experience with it but there could be this pressure where it feels like that's the only option and there can be right. so much that goes into it like purity culture stuff <laughs> and I have my own story and I have an interesting story and I won't share the whole thing on here, but it, it has some interesting facets that, you know, even though like I did know some things about myself, I, and I engaged in some things about myself, I could have like fully explored more, but that religious trauma piece, that conservatism with my family kept me from a lot of being myself. Like who I am now is not who I was in my early 20s or in my teens, not at all. I talk about my best friend here and there on the podcast. My best friend, yeah, my best friend. So my best friend is in the New Jersey, New York area. And I've been best friends with him since I was 14. And I am 39 this year. And so he always said he knew I was bi. And he knew I was bi before I even knew, like I knew I was bi, but before I like actually came out, he was actually my boyfriend and he knew I was bi because I was checking out women more than I was checking out guys. Even though I did, but I was like, I'm definitely maybe more prone that way. <laughs> and I'm also like, you know, a little gender queer, but like, he was like, you're bi, you're definitely bi. And so he always jokes with me about it. And so the thing is, is that he actually will say like, you're the same person, but you're not like, you're the same person, but he could tell that like, I've, I've actually like fully come out of my shell as I've gotten older because I wasn't like trapped in whatever that was like, cause he knows my family. He knows them well. Like he, he lived like a block from me. Yeah. And that's a theme that I, I love that you shared that because I feel like that is so relatable. Like that's relatable to me. And I feel like it's relatable to most folks I work with who have experienced religious trauma is like the people who may have known them. There can be these mixed reactions and it can be really hard to hold on to your own self and your own story. We're talking about narratives in the midst of that, because there can be people who are like, you've changed so much. Like you're not even the same person in this really negative way of like trying to pull them back. I know for myself, a lot of folks that talk with, it's more like stepping fully into who you always were, but who is kind of like hidden in there. So to the people who you had to hide from, it looks like, oh, you've changed into this totally different person. But for the people who can love and accept and grow with you, it's more like how your friend was saying, like, 
enjoying getting to see more fully who you are and who you were really underneath all of that. Exactly. And I like hearing that. He is the only one who actually really has known me. Like no one else actually has gotten to see that. Like the only one. Like I always think people have like tons of like multiple soulmates. He's one of them. He's definitely one of them. Oh, I was going to say, this is on like just a personal note. So it's like, okay, if you don't feel comfortable with this, but I was thinking like, like, do you ever find that people who you met after the bulk of your transformation, it's kind of like, it's kind of weird, almost like, like, what would you think if you knew me when I was like before this? Cause I'll like, I'll run into that even with my fiance, yeah. where I'm, like, he's only known me, not that there's a before and after. Cause like we're saying it's the same person, but I'm like, there was such a transformation that I'm like, if you yeah. met me before, like, I don't, I can't even describe how different it was. Whereas like those few friends I have who really were there for the growth. It's cool having that perspective of somebody who saw the whole process. Yeah. I wonder about that. Like, I wonder who my husband would think if he saw me before that. Cause like, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm really outspoken. I'm really assertive. I wasn't always. I'm very outspoken. I'm, I'm a total clown. Like my personality is on my sleeve. I'm very genuine, but I haven't always been able to be that way for obvious reasons. Like, Oh yeah. I was like a doormat. Like I exactly didn't have a, I couldn't even have told you what my opinions were. (laughs) I was was a doormat. Like in, in school, I was a doormat. I was bright you know, cause I went to public school. It was bright. I did really well, but people walked all over me and now no one would walk all over me. Like if I went to school, like no one would walk all over me, but I would, people walked all over me and for good. I mean, it made sense. Like if I go back and I think about how it was at home, it makes a lot of sense because I was very, I was in a very controlling environment. Like, yeah. you know, and you take that out into other contexts when your main context is like you're being controlled or you might go in the total opposite direction. Like there can be people who are like, you bully where we you see people bully. who are like acting out because they're so yeah. controlled at home that they may be acting out or they may go exactly. the other direction and be doormat, which I'm saying doormat because I am describing myself that way. So I'm not insulting anybody else, but. No, but that's actually yeah. exactly <laughs> what happened to me. Like I really was. And I, um, I ate lunch in the library. I was not, how I am now. I mean, I, I have some introversion that's natural, but I'm mostly like, I have a lot of extroversion in my personality or I wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing this podcast. It, it, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting how we can actually come out of our shell when we actually get through something. And it's nice that you like, if you have people who can see it, who actually can truly see it, want to hear it from them. But the people who don't understand, right, they'll think something totally different. Yeah. Or just, yeah, like it just comes natural or it, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I'm quite comfortable in a lot of settings now. And then something will come up where I'll be like, oh yeah, I came from a very different place. And sometimes it's something really like really innocuous, like not knowing SpongeBob SquarePants. Like I'll be in a group of my peers and be like, I never saw that. And so, so sometimes it'll be something really innocuous or sometimes it'll just be like a, yeah, a little, it can be something more serious, but yeah, there's lots of times where it's like, wow, I can't even begin to explain how different things were. <laughs> but I mean, if that to me, it makes sense. 
it makes a lot of sense. But I mean, not not everyone's going to understand. I think though that by being on this podcast, though, and I, I think it makes a big difference. I think it's really important to share what religious trauma is, and I think that because of the fact that not everyone understands that your experience is not uncommon. So many people who experience this, like, I, I wish I had a statistic. I don't have a statistic, but it's so, because, because of the fact that it's so hidden, mm-hmm. like so many people have this happen. And there's so many different types of religion, so many different types of sects of religions where this happens. And it's not just like a type of Christianity. It's a lot of different types of r- religious trauma that this happens that people that people experience that, I mean, it's sad. And I think that we just need to be open to it. I think we need to be open to it. We need to empathize with it. We need to understand instead of when someone says, well, I, I didn't experience it. We need to not judge. We need to be, we need to be understanding is, is, and also like, as being like those of you who have experienced it, those of you who actually start to realize, Hey, I might actually have some of these symptoms, like maybe this is an awakening for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just like other, any other kind of trauma, like two people can experience something. They could even go to the same exact religious community and have totally different experiences. Just like not everyone who gets into a car accident is going to develop PTSD. The same thing with religious trauma. So like, even if people around you, even people in your same exact family might not be experiencing it that way, that doesn't mean that your experience isn't real. And it doesn't mean that like you still deserve to heal and work on and get to living the life that you want to live. Like even if other people in your community seem okay and they seem content with it, that doesn't mean that you can't have your own experience and need a place to heal from it. Exactly. Exactly. And it, and each each experience does look different. It doesn't look the same because each person is can be coming from a different background. What do you normally do in therapy? So I am a certified clinical trauma professional and I do pull from different trauma-informed modalities. Use a lot of internal family systems. I love doing like parts language. What is parts language? Yeah. So this is like making it's the idea that we all have different parts of ourselves. And sometimes these can be like conflicting and it's a way to like process through these different parts and get more, I'm trying to put this as simple as possible, but like get more in touch with our like self-compassion and like our core self to combat some of that shame and other difficult emotions to kind of like lead ourselves with compassion. And I actually do use a good bit of narrative therapy. Interestingly, that was, that's pretty common among marriage and family therapists I found. It's like, that's one of the methods that works really well for marriage and family therapists who works with individuals. Yeah. That's a postmodern things. It's definitely one of my favorites. Like, I mean, I'm trained in different things, but I, I feel like I always go back to narrative and I combine narrative can be combined with so many different things, which is why it's my favorite. So I tend to train people with narrative and then I can do like, I mean, it be narrative solution focused, be narrative object relations. It could be narrative. CBT, you can combine narrative with so many different things, which is why it's my favorite. And, you know, I have a bachelor's, I have a bachelor's in psychology and a bachelor's in literature. So that storytelling. Yeah. Just fell in love with narrative therapy. Yeah. And I love Um, the externalizing that helps mm -hmm. a lot with putting those 
ideas outside of yourself instead exactly. of exactly yeah so it's so helpful for separating people from does that separate the person from the problem basically. exactly which works well with parts language yeah it's <laughs> so like... i'll be <laughs> exactly like i'll be in the middle of group supervision and i'll be talking about narrative and i'm like and now we're on ifs <laughs> i don't know what that happened but now we're over here it works really well those two work really well together too yeah so i mean that that gives an idea of how you work what led you to become a therapist without me making any assumptions oh i love um <laughs> see i love narrative therapy i love storytelling so i'm like i could just tell you the whole story how i became a therapist um but i actually wasn't uh, i think i always had interest in like helping people and i always really preferred like deeper conversations. I'm a little shy. I don't know if that's coming across, but I really love one-on-one -on -one deep conversations, <laughs> but that wasn't really like on the table for me in the way that I grew up because it was very, a, very much a like pray instead of going to therapy sort of a environment. I'm not shocked. That's common. Pretty common. And also I was definitely on the track to be a homeschooling parent with many children was kind of like what I was expecting, but they did want us to get a bachelor's in case my, you know, eventual Christian husband ever died. So but yeah, I realized there was a lot of, there was a lot of privilege in being able to do that. Like I had childcare from my son's grandparents. They were not my parents, but his other grandparents and they were extremely supportive and always like believed in me seeking more education. So they were kind of like my surrogate family. So I credit them very strongly. That was really great. I'm really glad that you had that because a lot of people don't. And I'm really glad that you had that so that you could actually go and go to grad school. Yeah. They're my, like I said, my surrogate family and they're wonderful. Now my son thinks that his parents are like brother and sister. That's always like my funniest thing he told his teacher because we had the same parents. I was like, no, nobody. No, your parents are not brother and sister, I promise. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, I'm really glad. Well, geography is you look at things from from different angles and Yeah, and it really got me to like expand my mindset of like talk about like coming out of a bubble of like let's just look at the whole world. Like let's let's look at all different religions, let's look at all different people and mm -hmm. the different because I think I always had a curiosity about people even though I wasn't supposed to, but it definitely makes sense that I was intrigued by something that was very encouraging of considering all different ways of living. It was on your way of growth. It was part of your story. For sure. It was a really important dot. <laughs> a really important dot on that story. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really great. And I think that those of us who become therapists, you know, we definitely have this interpersonal intelligence. We definitely have this empathy. We have this interest in people. And sometimes though, it just, it just needs something to help us expand, expand it. Like we just have to acknowledge it, you know, with the beginning of your story, you know, you didn't really have this chance to really learn about yourself you didn't have this chance to really learn about like who you were or you know what you could do and I think that happens to a lot of us is you know going back to religious trauma or any type of trauma you know we don't really we don't really get this chance of trying to figure out like who we are or what we could do and you know that happens that's the thing about 
you know, being controlled or trapped. Like if you, if you have that type of upbringing, you don't, and some are worse than others. And we're not like saying, okay, well, that means that you're invalidated. It's just that, you know, if you, if you're unable to really explore who you are, then you're not really able to see what you're capable of. Building that confidence is key. And we build confidence and also like work on anxiety by doing, not just by thinking, we have to do it. That's so rewarding when people get to start doing and trying new things. Mm-hmm. And you and I were doormats. I was a very anxious person. I was like, like I'm I, still an anxious person. <laughs> it's just, it's uh, much better. Than <laughs> I was, I'm like, I'm going to be growing for the rest of my life. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you know, the more you work on it, the better it'll be. I was super anxious. Like I had panic attacks. I mean, even up until about seven years ago, when I went to go to like a, a like a networking event, I would get sweating palms and I would get like kind of my, my heart would beat fast to try to speak in a group. And now I don't get any of that. Like it took me a while to start this podcast. And then once the pandemic hit, I was like, I'm ready now. Yeah. Like I'm ready. I can do it this narrative, we're going to go back to narrative because, you know, your narrative takes time. Your narrative is constant. Our stories are constantly unraveling. We never know where it's going to end up. It takes time for us to work on, you know, if it's anxiety to work on our trauma, whatever it is, if it's depression. It's really important not to rush things. I think people think you're going to go to therapy and you're going to be like, I'm going to go to therapy and I'm just going to kick it. That's not how it works. Anyways, Ethan, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. I want you to have a chance to go through your media for people so they know where to find you. Oh, yeah. So thank you at The Spooky Therapist on TikTok and Instagram. And then my website is EasonBeck.com, E-A-S-I-N-B-E-C-K. And yeah, those are the places where I post regularly. I don't really do Facebook or Twitter. So. Well, thank you so much. You've been amazing. And everyone, as usual, please leave a review if you'd like. Reviews are always helpful. Again, I'm like, what is wrong with me today? Hit subscribe and I'll see you next time. Bye.